post-Easter series that I've been doing that I'm calling Easter Plus. That's sort of the general idea. And my idea, my hope with this was for us to continue to think and to pray about what life looks like after Easter. Because for a great many folks who profess a deep love in Jesus, Easter is sort of like this, this peak point in their faith. They, they move to the resurrection and then sort of live what can almost be qualified as a bit of a mundane existence for the rest of the calendar year. Or for those of us that maybe appreciate the Christian holidays, maybe we sort of see that, that spiritual hunger to know Jesus and experience him. That might grow maybe around the Christmas season. But nonetheless, on the, in the Christian calendar, we have these two amazing events that take place, the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so Easter, for many of us, is the end of a spiritual high season, but in the Easter narrative, it's actually the beginning of the way life is supposed to be from here on out. Meaning the, the power and the authority, the enthusiasm of the resurrection, all that it gives to the world and promises us, the forgiveness of sin, life everlasting, all of these beautiful truths that the cross shows us are not meant to be celebrated once a year. They're meant to be dwelled upon every day of our lives. And so last week, we began studying the story of Mary Magdalene in John 20, 1 through 18. And we're going to pick up the second part of that here momentarily. And the reason we're looking at this story is because this story, much like the story of Doubting Thomas that we studied three weeks ago, chronicles one of the many times Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection and how they responded to him. So in the Bible, Easter happens, but then a lot of amazing stuff happens after Easter. The church is founded in birth. The Holy Spirit comes to the world, and Jesus is continuing to spread the, the message of peace that he showed the world on the cross. And so these stories really show how Normal people like you and I responded to this amazing and profound truth. And our text today zeroes in on a particular encounter that the risen Jesus had with Mary Magdalene. And this is a powerful passage for a number of reasons. The biggest are that it shows us some important truths about this new kind of relationship Jesus' resurrection allows us to have with him. This new testament or this new covenant, that's what your Bible calls it. It's sort of an, a new way God is working in the world. It's this relationship built on us following Christ through the power and the presence of his spirit and no longer necessarily demanding that, that we will only affirm or believe in him, follow him if he can physically present himself to us. And so this episode between Jesus and Mary in John 20 is another concrete validation of how Jesus makes good on his greatest promise, that after his resurrection, those who believe in him, those who really follow him, those who affirm who he is and what he has done, they want to explore that and investigate that and have him continue to write those truths on their heart. Those folks are going to be offered something pretty amazing. The opportunity to dwell in his personal presence forever. And so what's happening now in the first century world is Jesus is sort of changed. He's no longer the Jesus that they remembered, sort of completely physical, where they could touch him and sit and have supper with him. There's this transition that's happening right now. And people are sort of freaking out that Jesus is no longer going to physically be with them. But he tells them time and time again that it's better if he is no longer physically with us. This is the main truth that we spoke about last week. And Mary's inability to deeply believe that is the root of why she's having this major faith crisis in this passage. And keep in mind, I said this last week and I want to say it again, that this is not a sermon or a commentary about Mary's failure points. Mary is just like us. And you'll see this as we move into this. Mary is a person who loves Jesus deeply, but has this significant crisis of faith. So this is not a commentary about Mary. This is a commentary that we sort of learn from Mary on because we have all been and will be at this place at some point. None of us sort of aces a life in faith. Every single one of us has these stress points. And so our desire is to really figure out how is it that we can continue to trust and follow Jesus when they arise. Now, really briefly, I want to share with you what we said last week. 
Up until this point in Mary's life, it's been marked by an absolute devotion to Jesus. She is truly one of the most exemplary disciples that Jesus has. She is, is following him and pursuing him in ways that, that really we can learn from. And that's why this is such an interesting story. Because right now, in verse 13, she is un, she's uncontrollably weeping. It's somewhat of a shock that somebody who so deeply followed Jesus would have such a crisis of faith. At least it might be a shock from the, from the narrative perspective. But if you love Jesus, you know there are times when faith can wane, or we can get apathetic or numb, or we have questions, or we doubt. And so the once faith-filled Mary, who never leaves, it, leaves Jesus' side, at great risk to her own life, the one who stays with Jesus even while he's being put on the cross, this amazing disciple, exemplary in who she is and what she does, is now overcome by doubt, fear, anxiety, and dismay. She is doubting the very Jesus she walked with, the one that she talked with, and personally experienced every area, aspect of his ministry with. And here is why I'm repeating this. It's super important for us to know this before we move into the second part of this text. Mary has a very serious and rich relationship with Jesus. And she shows us, without a doubt, because of the, the history of her in the New Testament, her, her relationship with Christ, we know, just like John told us, that these folks that are looking at Jesus' tomb right now, they heard Jesus. They, they knew what Jesus said was supposed to happen. According to the scripture, he was going to rise again. They had heard him say this personally. They weren't even just reading the verses. Jesus was physically telling them this stuff. That on the third day after his death, he would rise again. But because of this, you sort of expect, like, if I were to tell you, hey, um, I'm going to die tonight, but if you come to my house like on Wednesday, I'm going to rise again. If you came to my house on Wednesday, you might think there would be a chance. Like, you'd either think right away, that guy is crazy, right? That's the first thing you might say. And people said that about Jesus. Or maybe if you showed up to my house, you would, we would hope, right, that what I said to you would have impacted you enough for you to actually believe that. And so what's happening here is people heard Jesus say this stuff all the time, but they could not wrap their heads and their hearts around the fact that it actually happened, which is why they approached this situation with doubt. Different forms and variations of it, but every one of them is looking at what Jesus said he was going to do and then saying that he did, that didn't happen. They're not actually saying he couldn't do that. This narrative shows us that there's some very subversive ways they are doubting Jesus here. So you would think Mary, knowing this, seeing Jesus, walking and talk with, talking with him, when she came to the tomb, would say, it's empty, like empty linens, John tells us. He made good on the promise, he's risen. But that's not what happens. She, in fear and doubt, cries out, hey, somebody stole Christ's body. That's the first thing she thinks. The body is gone, and she thinks he must have been stolen. And although she heard this truth about the resurrection, although we hear the truths and the promises of God all the time, especially if you're in the Word, the idea at times of him actually doing what he says he's going to do is where we might have the doubt issue. It's not that we don't know the promise. It's that at times we just forget the fact that he can actually fulfill it. And so here, Jesus promises that he's going to overcome the grave. He's going to defeat sin. And in Mary's mind, this is not a fact right now. This is not a reality. And so I say again, I want to be honest and humble here. The story of Mary's doubt is not an isolated one. In fact, it's a very common one in the Bible, and it's a common one in our lives if we're going to be honest. We saw it with Doubting Thomas, and as disciples of Jesus, every one of us has moments of doubt. I actually personally believe doubt is necessary for growth. This is my belief in this. And for you to really own a truth, you likely have to wrestle with it at some point. And so doubt is not necessarily a negative thing. It actually has a, a profound purpose in the Christian faith. 
And when we are true to God, when we seek God in our doubt, when we seek each other in our doubt, when we seek his word in our doubt, what happens is God can actually make what is a doubt at some point in our lives a refined truth that then begins to guide our lives. And so don't hear me doubt, you know, doubting doubt, that, no pun intended there. Hear me saying that doubt is necessary. But what we see here, the story that we're studying today, is what happens when somebody actually takes serious the doubt and doesn't use it to sort of invite confusion into their life. They're doubting, but they're, start, they're seeking. That's the difference here. And so the question we've been asking over these past weeks is, why does this doubt attitude take people's minds and hearts? Why does it overcome Thomas? Why does it affect Mary? Why does it affect us at times? All of these examples show us that in Christianity, it is completely possible to know something about Jesus without experiencing this change that is supposed to accompany it. And that's what's happening here. Jesus' promise of the resurrection was meant to bring hope and joy and stability to the lives of his followers. But for this season, post-cross, many of them have anything but that. Therefore, there's a question about what they really know and how deeply they know it. And I think it's very fair to say that the evidence of us really believing a promise that Jesus makes us, for example, when Jesus says we are to be people who are defined by joy, that is evidenced that we deeply know that by the fact that we actually experience the fruit of the promise of joy. Like we are actually joyful people. That doesn't mean you're annoyingly happy 24-7. That's not what joy is in the Bible. We've talked about those folks before. It's very difficult at times to see folks that almost have a facade of happiness that's one persona in our world. What we're talking about is a deep-seated understanding of joy where, where you have purpose and meaning and worth and value and hope when circumstances necessarily are not the way you need them or want them to be in life. And so with this in mind, we pick up this second part of our teaching in John 20. And we learn a very simple truth here. A lot of what Jesus said to his people and to us is simple, but it's often challenging to apply. To hear it is one thing. To live in light of these truths is another And I want to share one idea with you this morning. If you truly want to experience the new relationship Jesus offers you, offers me, this post-cross relationship, then what this passage shows us, what every conversation shows us, is that we have to believe, we have to have faith, we have to pursue Jesus on his term, on his terms. We have to take him for who he says he is. That's why sort of interweaved throughout this passage, John is telling us, like, some people saw and believed. And then some people like Thomas needed to have, like they had to touch him. And Mary needed more proof. Interesting that this is sort of this, this tension. Some people get it and some people don't. I want to reread John 20, 11 through 17. Just a segment of where we're going to be today. Because this is the crux of what we're studying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They, may, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But John's clear here. She did not realize that it was Jesus. This is the main truth we're going to talk about today. She's looking at Jesus but cannot recognize that he is Jesus. Who is it you are looking for, thinking he was the gardener, she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Interesting use of terms there. There's, like a, and there's this sort of like equivalence where Jesus is saying, our Father now, my Father. Amazing. Now, Mary's crisis of faith here is rooted in a very simple verse. 
It's in her inability to see how Jesus had chosen to work in her life. She's looking at him and can't understand what's happening. And John makes this very clear in the details he gives us in these verses. He lets us know Mary's faith crisis is a crisis not because Jesus cannot be found, not because Jesus has left her, but rather because she is looking for him in a place where he can no longer be found. The issue isn't Jesus's presence or availability in her life. The issue is that she is not dialed into the place where he said he was going to be. And so she is looking in this empty tomb, wondering who stole his body, while Jesus is literally standing right behind her. So blinded to the presence of Jesus at, in this moment in her life that she's, she's sort of overcome and overwhelmed by grief. She thinks he's gone. And even when she does turn around, I want you to think about this detail John gives us. She looks, John tells us, at Jesus. And in her mind, she cannot even recognize his face. She goes on and says, oh, you must be the gardener. You must be the one who took his body. So blinded to who he is at this moment in her life that even when she does gaze upon him, it physically requires Jesus to identify himself before her. Now, this is a classic example of someone expecting God to, to be something or to work in a certain way in their lives and then doubting God or missing God when he, when he does not work that way. And so you see a great many people miss out on deeply experiencing this intimacy with God that we're talking about here because at times we have a a preconceived notion of how God is supposed to work in our lives. We essentially have a set of terms that we set before God and say, if you work within my terms, then I will understand you, believe in you, affirm you, and follow you. We have an expectation of what God is supposed to do of how God is supposed to respond in a certain matter of life, whether it's in our own personal life or very common today to say this in the larger context of the world. If God was real, this would happen or that wouldn't happen. We have all these ideas about what God should and should not be doing. And sometimes they are right, but oftentimes they are very preferential. And then when God doesn't work that way, when he doesn't meet a need the way we expect, when he doesn't fit into our preconceived box that we're trying to squeeze him into, we're trying to make a very grand and big God very small, by subjecting him to our vision for the world and our lives, then we start to wonder if God is who he says he is. Now, I want you to hear me here. This is what we call doubt. Fundamentally, this is doubt. But doubt is a symptom of a much larger issue. Typically, whatever we're feeling or going through in life, our emotions, whether they are physical emotions, whether they're negative ideas or falsities, whatever it is, there is always a root driving that. And so doubt almost always is a symptom of a much larger and more significant problem. And that problem is the word fear. Fear. We often doubt because we are afraid. We doubt tomorrow. We wonder what tomorrow will hold. And so we're concerned about everything. And when we get concerned, so concerned that we're overwhelmed by tomorrow, what that means is we are fearful of tomorrow. And when we are fearful of tomorrow, at least in the Christian paradigm, it means we no longer have a faith in a God that actually can bring us peace because he holds tomorrow in his hands. Fear drives doubt. And I want to give you an example of this, a very clear one. Over the past year, uh, you know, I have two daughters and a son. My seven-year-old daughter, Adelaide, Addie, as you know her, that's what we call her. She has finally, in this past year, hit this stage in life where she has this consistent fear of the dark. And I even noticed this with my son. Uh, You know, we were all kids at one point. The dark sometimes can be fearful, even as grown adults. You know, like when I hear a bump in my house at night or something, I'm not thinking like, hey, make it darker. You know, that's not our natural inclination. As people, we're looking for light. That's sort of how the world is, is wired. Our most productive time is during the daylight. So there's a natural 
reason for why the dark is it's necessary in our world, obviously, like I like to sleep in it. But when there are concerns, we typically want something illuminated. And so she's at this place in life where she is afraid of the dark. And no parent wants to see their child fearful of anything especially something as common as the dark. It's never going to go away. It's always around and, you know, has its space in the world. And so as parents, we have a responsibility to shepherd our kids' hearts, to help them to understand not just what their fear is, because remember, the dark is a symptom of something much deeper, but more importantly, what the root of the fear is, what drives the fear of the dark, what drives the fear of fill in the blank in our own lives. And so each night, this same episode plays out in my daughter's room when I put her to bed. When I put her in bed, I turn her room lights off and immediately she gets nervous and then she asks me to do the same thing every night it's like a choreographed dance she then says daddy can you turn the hallway light on there's a hallway that connects to her bedroom because when i turn that light on it doesn't completely get rid of the dark but it illuminates a good portion of it predominantly her bed it puts just enough light on her to take the fear away now most nights I turn the light on for her because I'm not a jerk. I'm not trying to be a jerk, and I don't want her to be afraid. There's no hard life lessons here. I, I turn the light on because I know that it comforts her. But I want you to know that I, just like I tell her, that light is not enough. The solution is a temporary one, and I tell her this every night. Even though it solves the fear problem in the short term, it does not address the root of the problem at all. The hallway light takes away her fear for an evening, but in no way does it actually address why she's afraid of the dog. It's a symptomatic way to solve a problem on the surface level, but not nip it at the root. And so each night, if or when I have to turn the light on, I remind her of this. We have this little statement that goes back and forth. I tell her I'm turning the light on, right? And I tell her that be, to be careful, though, to not put her hope in a light bulb, in a false sense of security. Light bulbs burn out. Light bulbs are not every place in life. There are places where there are no lights to light up the darkness. And I make her this promise. I tell her the reason she doesn't need to fear the dark is not because of the light bulb, but it's because I'm here for her. That's what I want her to know every night. At all times, I'm just a couple of feet away from her. And I make sure I'm by her room until she goes to sleep. I sit in my living room, which we share a wall, and I can hear everything that's going on in there. And so I promise to do everything in my power to let her know that at a moment's notice, if she gets scared of the dark, all she has to do is call my name, and I will be there in a moment. When my son, who's now 12 and is not afraid of the dark, thankfully, when he was uh, very small, we had our own little system worked out. We had a knocking system, and when he would knock on the wall three times, I would know he needed me, and I would get up and go in there. And over time, his confidence grew. He's sitting in this room right now, I think, and probably utterly embarrassed, but sorry, buddy. (laughs) What would happen is, over time, there was a comfort with the dark. And so maybe you're asking, like, what is my point of this? It's not to give you bedtime teachings. That's not what I'm talking about here. I want you to think about this, though. Think about how the way we see a situation like this, how we see situations in our own life, how we approach them really dictates whether or not we band-aid something or actually get to a place in life where, where we deal with something. What do you think is a better way to shepherd a human heart? In this case, to teach my daughter to trust and hope in a light bulb, a light switch to address her fear, or her dad, who is far more caring and concerned than a light bulb can ever be. That's just the reality of it. Light bulbs don't care about you, but we care about our children. And my vote is for the latter. And so each night I try to shepherd our heart to understand the hallway light makes it feel better for a little bit. It makes it feel like the dark has gone away, but it actually hasn't because the light just pacifies the problem. How do we know that? Well, I'll know that that isn't the case when we can go to bed without turning the light on. That's how you know that the fear issue has actually been nipped, that we're not band-aiding a problem. And the reason this is true is because when you sort of, in our own world, when we address root symptoms of what we're dealing with, particularly when it comes to doubt, 
when you recognize that we don't necessarily need to be afraid of circumstances, it changes the way we understand our circumstances. In this case, what happens is I'm trying to help my daughter understand that there's a, a greater love and protection provided to her, for her. What is better, to trust the light bulb or in this case to trust, to trust the one who is in charge of the light in the darkness, right? One sort of helps you address a symptom. The other builds this deep and robust confidence in a person or in this case a God. And so you see, turning on the light is just a correction to a temper. It's a temporary correction that doesn't actually address the root of the problem. However, trusting me changes things. And the same is true when it comes with our Father in heaven. There is a much more robust kind of security and trust that develops in our life when we no longer ask God to sort of fix things or change things the way we expect them to be done. And we've sort of learned to trust that God is often working in ways that are not fully clear to us. It doesn't mean that we're confused, but it means sometimes things are happening in ways different than we expect for a reason. And when that happens, when you address the root, in this case fear, that confidence starts to affect other areas of life because it starts to affect the issue of fear. And there are other things, if fear is your issue, that you are afraid of. We don't deal with symptoms, we deal with the root. This type of trust is more powerful, but it requires a more meaningful and thoughtful type of faith one that Mary is sort of without right now. This is how God wants to work in our lives, but we usually just want him to make the dark go away. We have a metaphorical darkness we want him to take from us. And the reason this is so is, the reason we miss God a lot of times in circumstances like this is because most of us, want to, we want God to work in a way, we want him to deal with an issue in our life in the way that we believe is best. We want him to do what we think is best for us. Frankly, we just want him to turn a light on, whatever that light is in our lives. But God is more concerned with just flipping switches in our lives. He wants us to be confident in him when there is no light to turn on. He wants us to, to, to know that there is a deeper sense of security and trust that he provides us. He wants us to know that even if we can't find a switch at this present moment in our life, even if we can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, we have to know that that exists. And it exists because of these stories we're studying right now. The promise of Jesus to never leave or forsake us is what these passages are teaching us. And there are constantly people who think that he has left and forsaken them. He's promised to never leave us. He's promised to guide us and lead us to the place that is best for us. And I want you to know that oftentimes what is best for God's economy, God's kingdom in our lives, that does not always coincide with the box we're trying to, you know, tape him into. We put him in these very small boxes, expecting him to do things that sort of logically make sense to us. It can work that way sometimes, but we can't expect it to always work that way. Now, maybe you're here saying, how do you know this? Like, how do you know that, Anthony? Maybe you're saying, uh, I met you once, like in the hallway, or I've heard you speak a couple of times, or I've heard you speak a lot, but I've never told you, like, what's going on in my life. Maybe you're saying, how, how can you say this? How do you know what I'm going through? Maybe you're saying something like, you know, that story about turning lights on in the hallway with children, it makes sense to me, but I'm dealing with grown-up issues, man, like, not the fear of the dog. I got problems in my marriage. I got problems in my friendships. I'm being worked to death by an employer. I'm unsatisfied in my life right now. I've got no joy. I feel like I'm all alone in the world. I just lost someone dear to me, you know, a friend, a spouse, a sibling. I'm not even sure why I love Jesus anymore. Why do I come to church? Why do I serve him? Why am I supposed to give my life to this? Maybe you're saying that. Maybe what you're saying in your own way, or you know somebody in your life you're caring for right now that's saying this, you're saying, I can't see or sense Jesus anymore. I don't see him outside of the tomb. I see empty bandages, and I can't figure out where he's gone. Well, in one regard, I want to say this. 
I know a great many of you on a very deeply personal level. That's one of the, the high values of our church is that we really know each other. That's hard to do, but it's a value worth fighting for. And over the years, I've been super privileged to be a part of many of your ups and downs, and you a part of mine. And that said, even with a, a church like ours that values meaningful relationship and the sloppiness that's often associated with that, there is no way for us as people to ever absolutely know every detail and struggle that we deal with in life. It's actually not possible, especially if we're people who sort of don't value sharing that with others. However, what I, what I need you to hear is that this is not a sermon about somebody knowing every detail of our lives, at least on earth. What's happening here is in, in a similar way. If the question you're asking is, why isn't God working in my life right now in whatever way? Or why is he working in a way that doesn't seem to make sense to me? You have to know that this is the struggle Mary is having in John 20. And this is why this is a passage deeply human. It's not a story about Mary. This is a story that in God's goodness, he gave us this story for Mary so we could learn something about us. She is wondering, literally wondering where Jesus is. And she is likely feeling very lonely and confused right now because she doesn't have an answer to this question. She cannot see, sense, or understand his presence. He is there, but she cannot figure out where he is. She's got a darkness she can't find a light switch for right now. Mary, just like us at times, is looking in an empty tomb. We're wanting God to sort of work in ways that make sense to us. I mean, look at what happens here. She doesn't just see the empty tomb. She then turns around and sees the gardener and says, oh yeah, that makes sense. You must have taken the body. That's what happened. She's created a whole like parallel narrative for what God's going to do and how he's doing stuff. And it's completely different from the way God is actually working. And what we learn here is God often does have a very different plan for us. He often is working in ways that don't fit into our little boxes because he knows better. He has a different plan for Mary and he usually does for us too. And what I love about this plan is that Jesus' response to Mary is kind and gentle and patient. He doesn't like, you know, since he's the gardener, flip the hat at her and make her feel inadequate or, or unnecessary on this earth. There is this amazing shepherdly care that he provides to her. And we know this, I mentioned this last week, because he, he calls her out by name. And I want you to know that God is also patient with us when we have negative emotions that define our days or false spiritual beliefs that cause us to doubt who God is or even who we are at times. How do we know this? John 20, 16 through 17. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What's happening here is John, John is letting us know she refers to him as rabbi. That is what they called him. So what happens here is she knows this is not the gardener. This is Jesus. And what happens next is fascinating. This is how we're going to end this morning. Jesus then says, do not hold on to me, for I have yet, I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now I want you to think about this. In Mary's case, a moment ago, she is weeping uncontrollably. So much so that the angels need to ask her, like, what's, what's wrong? Why are you crying so like this? You're like out of control here. She thinks she has lost Jesus forever. And I can only assume if you deeply loved Jesus and you thought that you lost him forever, you would weep and grieve in your own soul in the same way. Then Jesus reveals his presence to her. And she is so overwhelmed by that joy. John doesn't say this happened, but we know by Jesus' response that it did. She latches onto him. She literally falls onto him because she doesn't want to lose him again. 
That's why Jesus says, you, you can't hold on to me like this. The, the, the image here is that she knows it's him and she clutches him in this profound way that shows her love and affection for him. It is pretty clear she believes that things are going to go back to the way she thought they would be, that she's going to sit at the supper table with him like it was, and they're going to walk around the dusty streets of the ancient Near East, and they're going to have parables taught to them, and they're going to process all this stuff. She thinks that's the way it's going to be, and it actually is going to be that way. It is that way for us. It's just not the physical relationship. We don't walk with Jesus in dusty streets anymore. We walk with him as he is in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. But here, remember, cut them some slack. 2,000 years ago, she thinks the rabbi's back and the disciple band is getting back together. That's what she thinks here. But Jesus says this is not going to be the case. In fact, this is why this sermon is titled A New Way to Believe. Because at this moment in history, humanity's relationship with Jesus is shifting dramatically. It's shifting from the one where you can touch him to one that is defined by touching him through faith and followership. The way God is actually working is very different from how Mary believes he should be working. And it literally takes Jesus calling her out by name, reminding her of this, and then gently correcting her that the relationship is about to change. And so you see, like so many of us today, Mary wants what she thinks is best for her. She wants to deal with doubt and trial by going back to the way she thought it should be, the way that it was. And this is why she grabs Jesus and won't let him go. She does not want to see him leave. And he's trying to explain to her that I'm not leaving. You just have to look at this a little differently right now. And what seems odd here, at least to me, is that Jesus tells her, like, she is clutching him. And he tells her to stop that. Like, some people read this in a different way than I'm going to teach it to you this morning. But I believe this is the way that it should be taught. And I'm not alone in my quorum of research here. At first glance, Jesus tells her to stop like this. It might look like this is him being very calloused. But I would say that's pretty out of sorts with this passage because he's anything but calloused with her, especially to his most faithful disciple, one of them anyways. In actuality, what's happening here is he is telling her, giving the grounds, if you will, the terms for this new relationship with God where, where you cannot touch him like this, but the promised presence, after he ascends, he mentions it, the promised presence of God comes about 40 days after the resurrection, when the Holy Spirit comes to earth and the church is born. It's a, it's a way of knowing Jesus far more intimate than having to have him in front of us because even Jesus could not be at all places at all times when he was on the earth. But through the power of his spirit, what the New Testament teaches us is that he's with us all now. He is in us and around us and in every corner of this room. He is with every person on earth right now who loves him. He is in every it's 11 o'clock, so most of America is about to get out of church. you got about seven minutes left. I'm warning you here. He's in every church right now, worshiping with his people. That is the change that happens here. And like Thomas, Jesus tells Mary, look, if you need to hold on to me to have faith, if you've got to clutch me like this to have faith in me, in my word, faith in my promises to you, you're going to short sell yourself on the way I want things to be. You're never going to experience this level of intimacy all my people share with me now. And frankly, we all share it with each other. It doesn't work this way. Here's how we'll end. I want to give you some very common and clear examples of how we might clutch physically, clutch to Jesus in ways that are going to cause us to miss him. For example, if you're a person who is, maybe you value emotion and experience. These will be behind me. If that's what matters to you most, that is a very big thing in our world today, experience. What happens is, is when you demand emotion and experience from God, you're going to gauge his presence in your life by how sensational the things in your life are. 
In other words, if the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, is not parting, you will not think God is there. Or if you're a person who is all about evidence, if you're a doubting Thomas, what happens is you're going to demand that God reveals facts to you. You're going to say, well, why does it look like this, God? And you're going to expect him to say, because of this reason. You're going to say that. And then when he doesn't say that or doesn't answer that question or he doesn't give you the evidence you need in that situation, what's going to happen is you're going to not trust him. You're going to say, like, this finger goes in the holes of that hand or I won't believe. That's the story of Thomas. If you're a mystic, very common in our world today, many, 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 many people who value spirituality in our world today, but they miss the object of it when it comes to Christ. If you're a a mystic, what's going to happen is you will expect God to do some crazy hyper-spiritual stuff for you, or you're not going to believe he's real. Your lunch today is going to look like this. You go to a really good Chinese restaurant, and you're like, God, I think I'm going to lose my job. Speak to me. And then you ask for 25 fortune cookies, and you open them all, and you expect that God's going to say something crazy through a fortune cookie to you. We have these mystical experiences. I'm not saying God can't work in these ways. I'm just saying when the fortune cookie doesn't deliver or whatever our version of that is, we will then say, well, no, I I guess you're not real. Or if justice and mercy is your thing, you'll question God when you see all the crazy things happening in our world. Like why are normal people like you and me being gassed in Syria by a crazy president? We'll say stuff like that. Why can another person do this to other people? We'll say there can be no God if that's the case. Or if you're all about logic and reason, this is my world right now, you'll expect God to come home and give you really lengthy presentations and reports for everything he's doing in your life. And you know it if you're a logic person, you are about those pie charts and those bar graphs. You'll want something that clear, that he can point out every nuanced detail of what he's doing. What I'm telling you is that that is not the way God is going to work. He isn't going to do that, at least as often as we want it. Sometimes he can work this way. But our point in this message this morning, the drive here, is to not demand from God a different set of terms than the better terms he has offered us. He can work that way, but what Jesus is saying here is that when faith and followership define your life, he's going to work in a more meaningful way, so don't demand this. Because if you do, you will mistake God's presence in your life for a gardener. Remember, if you are in Jesus, he is with you. So if you feel that he's not there, that is not true. I'm not saying that I'm not, uh, you know, sort of affirming your emotions or my emotions in these points of, of life. What I'm saying is, is that is not true because Jesus said that would never be true. When we look to the cross and believe in what he's done and trust him, he's with us forever. Nothing can take him away from us. Why? Because he said so. There's nothing in my life that can remove me from him because he said there is no longer anything that can take me away from him or you away from him. Don't trade Jesus for the gardener. Don't trade Jesus for Thomas. Ask yourself here, why in every one of these stories does whomever, whomever the person that is writing it, they always sort of summarize this, this whole this narrative by saying something like, but uh, blessed are those who believe him without seeing. Blessed are those who can read his word and experience him. Blessed are those who pray to him and know him. Blessed are those that trust him. They can look at the world and see the way God is working. They don't necessarily see the physical hands of Jesus, but they can see God's movement. This is the way God wants us to see him. Because the greater faith relationship with Jesus has changed from the physical to the spiritual. And so as we move into this brief, but I pray, powerful time of response, ask yourself, when it comes to your faith, when it comes to your fellowship of Jesus, are you looking at an empty tomb or are you actually recognizing a risen Jesus? Every one of us has an empty tomb on one side of our life to doubt on and a risen Jesus to have faith in. And I just want to encourage you this morning to look to Jesus because according to the New Testament, and a great many of our lives, he is present, real, and risen, and does not, he didn't do that so that we wouldn't know that and experience that.
He did that so that we could now live in that, so that Easter could be every day. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, just for the amazing amount of stories in the Bible that are just deeply human. Every relationship we have on this earth, God, everything in our lives is about relationship. It is about our love and care for you, your love and care for us, and our love and care for people. Every single thing in our lives, in one way or another, is connected to relationships. And so it is my prayer, Lord, that as we see this passage, we would see just how caring and gracious you are when it comes to the relationship that you have with us. You give us space to doubt. You give us the freedom to ask questions. You give us, God, the ability to seek you in ways that are meaningful and powerful to us. And so I pray, Lord, that no matter how we enter this room today, in these final moments we have here together, we would not leave this room disconnected from this promise, that we would know your cross and your resurrection, and these stories show us how people who doubt you at some point are so overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace that they can do nothing but clutch to you. That is my prayer this morning, that in our hearts we would clutch to you, and that if we are unable to do that, or we are having trouble with that, or we've lost the desire to do that, that in every way, God, you would call us by name this morning and remind us deeply in the marrow of our bones who you are, in the depths of our soul. Help us to remember who you are. Show us your kindness and your grace. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now listen, in less than five minutes, you will be back in your world, likely eating lunch. And before you do that, I want to encourage you.